chapter 3. Boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin with you. You have your own translation in there and a place you can ask questions as well. <clears throat> and again, it will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's printed for you in toto in the ESV translation in your bulletin. And before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him together in prayer. One more time, let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Father God, as we come before Your Word this morning... Lord, we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to open this text up to us, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness that comes from You. Now transform us this morning by your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I want to do something I rarely do. I want to draw your attention this morning to the title of this sermon. To frustrated controllers versus joyful fearers. Because everybody pretty much falls into one of those two categories. In fact, we tend to switch back and forth throughout the day in those categories. Control freaks trying to control life or hanging back, being joyful, kind of chill, just fearing, letting someone else be in control. We're okay with that. We're going to fear them and let them do it. But we can see this in our kids in case you don't understand what I'm talking about. I mean, when is there joy and peace in your home? It's when the kids are not trying to control everything, right? When they're instead sitting back and, and joyfully fearing the parents, letting the parents be in control. You have peaceful in your house. We see it in traffic. You know that stuff they have in Columbia, right? When are we frustrated in traffic? When we are trying to control other cars, right? Right? Controlling, it takes away our peace. We don't have it. See, trying to grasp on and control life is the main source of frustration, mainly because we can't do it. We cannot control life. So, <clears throat> the author of Ecclesiastes, this philosopher, pastor, he's finally got that now, after two chapters of trying and, and thinking and working through these things. He's tried to exert control over his life through wisdom. He realized how much discontent is out there because he can't control anything. He ended chapter 2 then realizing, oh, contentment itself is a gift from God. God wants us to have joy. He wants us to have contentment as a gift so we can then let go of our desire to control everything and we can trust in Him. We also saw last week that we can't do that in and of ourselves. That we are too thirsty for glory, too thirsty for significance from the things of our life. We're trying so hard to squeeze joy out of those things. Trying to squeeze meaning and purpose out of our jobs, or out of our relationships, or out of our possessions. So we can't just sit back and let things go and be happy. But God has provided Away. He has invaded this frustrating world of control freaks with the gospel. That's what we saw last week. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has come into our world to set us free from that glory thirst by putting His approval on our life. By giving us 
His righteousness by making us holy and then adopting and accepting us as His children. In that gospel, we then have peaceful joy and contentment. But we still live under the sun. This world is still frustrating. And so this pastor philosopher now spends a little time kind of really digging into the ideas of letting go of control and instead just fearing God under His grace. How do we move from being a control freak who's always frustrated to kind of sitting back and just being a joyful fearer? That's what this text is about. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this text today. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, but we're only going to really concentrate on verses 9 through 15. Um, Very familiar passage. Many of you know the birds song from the 60s. I am not going to sing this. I ask you please not to sing this either. As we go to God's Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This is God's Word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is a gift. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's Word. <clears throat> so this, this opening poem, it, it's a list of things that God sends into our lives. It's a picture of life under the sun. Things such as kill, weep, mourn, hate, war, they're all part of a cursed world. So this poem that we, that we read here is a catalog, you could say, of Paradise Lost. And it tells us in the very beginning, there is a time for everything. Life under the sun is set. But we control freaks chafe against that. Solomon understands that now. 
and He offers a better way for us to deal with our control freak nature. And that gives us our theme for today. Here's where we're going to go today. If you want to remember the sermon, perhaps at lunch you can go over it. Here's what we're going to talk about. Controlling it all is frustrating, but God gives joy and pleasure to those who fear Him. Very simple. So we're going to see, basically, since our heart is there, we feel frustration here. But God gives joy now, is what He's going to show us. So let's look at this together. First thing we're going to look at in this text is eternal tastes on a lifespan budget. He tells us right away in verse 10, he, I get it now, I get it. Instead of life under the sun, He now brings God into view that brings clarity. It says life is not random. Life is not by chance. Solomon sees I'm not the sum total of my mistakes. No. Life is much bigger than that. It is planned. It is purposed. Everything has a time and a season. Notice how he himself defines it in verse 11. Look what he says. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, we're going to unpack that because that's some weird language, I know. But I want to kind of get the big picture first of what he's saying. So let's all go together to the children's translation of verse 11. Here's how we did it for them. He has planned out all things perfectly. He made us with a longing for more than this life, and yet we cannot grasp onto God's plan for either this life or eternity. See, we can't grasp onto what God's going to do here or even really what God's going to do in eternity. But we want to know, and there's our problem. We have an eternal taste on a lifespan budget. We just can't afford it. We can't do it. Eternity is in our heart. Eden courses through our veins. We want to know, we do know there's more to this life. And that knowledge shows up as frustration because it's rooted in a fierce pride. A fierce, rebellious pride that says we should be in control. We should be able to do things and we don't want to submit to a Creator. This is actually the original sin of Adam and Eve. God's word said this, and they said, no, I want to be in control. I want to know all things. And we continue it this day. We don't want God to be God. And yet He is the one who sets the times. We don't set the times. He is the one who sets the seasons we live in. We don't get to set the seasons. The truth of verses 2 through 8 frustrates us to no end because eternity is in our heart. We're control freaks bumping into frustration at a life that seems just happens and we have very little chance to affect it. Or we can, instead of being frustrated, we can sit back and rest in God's control of the options He puts in front of us. Now, when I say we, I don't just mean those of us in this room. Our neighbors are right here as well. Verses 2 through 8 frustrates our neighbors. They are yearning to find some control, some stability in their life, and they can't. They keep finding frustration under the sun. And here's what's so great. When you and I are honest about our longing for purpose, 
our longing to have control and yet we can't have control, it, when we're honest about those things, in other words, when we're willing to say not everything is okay, our neighbors recognize that. It gives us more credibility with our neighbors who feel that frustration too. And so as we have been building relationships with our neighbors, as we've been you know, having them over for coffee or playing some board games or just letting them borrow tools, you know, being a friend, as we're able to speak more openly with them through those things, we can touch on this deep yearning as a way to talk about spiritual matters. Here, here's, in case you're not tracking with me, here, here's what I mean. You know, I've quoted C.S. Lewis a lot here in Ecclesiastes because he really gets our situation. Here's what he said about this idea about eternity in our hearts. He says this. He says, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. See, what he says is that we have Eden in our veins. That's the truth all humans feel. We know there's something missing. We want something. Why do we have this lifelong, I wish things were different? Because eternity is in our hearts. And when we can touch on that truth with our neighbors when we can help give voice to what their heart is yearning for, we will see the gospel take a hold in their lives. And it's not just that eternity is in our hearts. Solomon also says here that God has made everything beautiful. He's made everything pleasant or well-ordered. Isn't that a great thought? And here we are slogging it out with life under the sun, dealing with times to mourn and times to dance and it's hard to see all that beauty, isn't it? We can't grasp the fullness of God's plan. And so for Him to reassure us, say, it is beautiful, gives comfort to our hearts. But usually we don't know that looking forward, but we've all seen it looking backwards. You know, Garth Brooks has this song. Yes, C.S. Lewis and Garth Brooks in the same sermon. Thank you very much. Welcome to Orangeburg. So anyway, Garth Brooks has this song called Unanswered Prayers. And he goes to his high school reunion. And he sees his high school sweetheart there and he remembers the intense feeling he had for her. He remembers all the prayers that she would be the one, that they would be married. And he looks at his wife who's not her and he just says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Right? See, in other words, what he says is, man, he has made everything beautiful in spite of my attempts to mess it up. That's what Solomon's talking about here. We've all been there, haven't we? Through difficulties, through trials, through wondering what in the world God is doing. Is He even there? Is he even, does He even care? I told some people this story before. I said, if, knowing what I know now, if God showed up on my 20th birthday and said, I canceled out all your student loan debt and here's $100,000 head start, but you've got to do everything you went through, I was like, no thank you. No, I'm not doing that again. No. Is it that hard? And we've all been there, haven't we? There's certain things you look back, uh-uh, I, I am never doing that again. I am not going through that experience. But then looking back, perhaps even decades later is what it takes, you can say, wow, that was not easy, but I'm really glad how things have worked out now. That's God making things beautiful in our time. That's what Solomon says here. He says, I don't have control over everything. It's frustrating. But if I just trust in God, instead of living life under the sun, if I live under God, it's beautiful. It really is. 
He sees it all. Every little step, every little sadness, every tear, every scar, every joy, every trial. God has orchestrated it and it's beautiful. See, He's put this beautiful plan in front of us. He's put Eden in our veins that we might turn our eyes away from the things of this world that we try to get glory from and instead turn our eyes back to our Creator who wants to give us joy and fulfillment as a gift, who Himself is the source of pleasure. Which is right where our text goes next. He shows us a joyful, contented pleasure as a gift. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Here's what he says. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, since God is working His beautiful plan, that a plan that we long for but we can't grasp, what are we supposed to do? Sit back and enjoy the ride, is what Solomon says. And that's really hard for control freaks like us to do, isn't it? But joy and happiness come when we simply just rest in God's control and say, okay, you've got this. And it's not just about us. You notice what he says there. He says, it's also so we can have joy and so what else? So we can do good. See, God has a beautiful plan for this cursed world under the sun. And the church, those of us who've been united to Christ by faith. The church is called very often to be God's hands and feet in the working out of that plan in this cursed world. To bring about the good of His beautiful plan very often falls to us. And if we're so busy trying to gain control of our life and being all wired and mired in frustration instead of living in the joy of the gospel and being free, very often we can't be of use to do any good. See, that's why the call to do good comes after and is rooted in the command to be joyful. You get joyful being rooted in the gospel first, then you're some use. Only when we have joy are we empowered to do good for our neighbors. And since joy is the key, notice how he continues the thought in verse 13. You can't get around it. He says, man, eat, drink, take pleasure in all the trials and the toils. If you'll allow me to sit back and put this in the vernacular in a way that will shock you, because it's supposed to shock you, is, man, sit back, have a burger and a beer, and just enjoy yourself. Literally in Hebrew, we could translate that little phrase there as experience pleasure. It's almost a command. Go out and find some pleasure now. We Christians need to hear that. Because very often we're reluctant to enjoy life. And you know it's true. You know there's kind of a little culture in church where if you're too happy, well, you must not be very godly. You seem to be a little too enthusiastic about things. You need to get a little bit more guilt in your life. Thank you very much. And you know we have that flavor sometimes, that kind of aroma that wafts through church world. I know. See, that's because instead of the gospel that we believe in, what we believe that being good makes God happy. That being good brings God's favor. And so we're scared to be too happy and joyful because we all know God's not happy. And so if we're too happy, we're not being like God. We don't believe that our guilt has been completely taken away, so God's still a little ticked off at us. 
Our sins are not as far removed as the east is from the west in Christ. So God's still angry. We don't believe that God looks upon us as righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so we're still kind of bad before him. So he's constantly disappointed in us. We don't really believe those truths of the gospel, and so we constantly think something along the lines of, yes, God has let me on his team because of Jesus. I get to wear the Christian jersey. I'll get to go to the after party when the season's done, but I'm constantly on the bench because I'm not a good performer. If I would just get out there and practice more and be better, God might let me play. But as it is, he's just disappointed in me. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's a performance-based churchianity that has no grace and no joy. And because it has no grace and no joy, it does no good to its own people or to others. Let the truth of verse 12 and 13 sink into your heart. God wants to give you joy. God wants you to experience pleasure even in the midst of toil under the sun. Do you believe that? Do our children believe that about God? Is that what we've taught them? What do you say, boys and girls? Do you believe that? God wants you to be happy and joyful? Let's look together at your verse 12 and 13. Here's what God's Word says to you. Here's what He's saying. I get it now. Instead of trying to control our life, it is better that we rejoice and do good where He has us. And we should enjoy life, finding pleasure in our work. It's all God's gift to us. See, boys and girls, God wants you to be joyful. He wants you to have fun today. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're paying attention. How many of you have been on a vacation? This is class participation time. Have you ever been on a vacation? Raise your hands, come on. I know some of you have. I've seen it. Y'all went to Great Wolf Lodge. Raise your hands. I know you did. There you go. All right. You've been on vacation. Good. And let me ask you something. During that vacation, were y'all walking around thinking, man, how much did this place cost? How much gas money are we spending? Do you know how much I'm putting on my credit card for all these meals at night? Boys and girls, did you think about any of those things? No. Why? Because mom and dad had a beautiful plan for the vacation that they put together. They were in control of how the vacation was going to work out, so you could just sit back and enjoy it. Boys and girls, that's the promise of God to you for your life in this passage. God is in control of our lives so we can sit back and have joy. You know, for all of us, we can't have that kind of joy unless we give up control. Our life is not in the hands of a cruel fate. Our life is in the hands of a sovereign God with a beautiful plan. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what your frustrations are, trust me, we've all got some major frustrations in the room. God is saying to us in the midst of that, I've got this. You can let it go. I'm handling it. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy what's happening, even if it's not easy. It's for your good. I've got this. That sounds very preacherly. I know, I know. It sounds like one of those things Christians are supposed to say. So I'm going to give you an example from real life. Anybody in the room not know who Corey Ten Boom is? Anybody? Okay, you can raise your hand. Okay, Corey Ten Boom, just in case you're too embarrassed to raise your hand, was, she was part of a Jewish family. They were in, their, their town was invaded, and they were taken captive by the Nazis. Her and her sister end up in Ravensbrück prison camp. They're in temporary barracks. 
for the first like month. While they're in the temporary barracks, the guards, family-friendly, let's just say, terrorized them nightly. They were longing to get away from these guards, and they finally got transferred to their more permanent barracks. And they walk into this place. It's dark. It's a place that was meant to house 400 people. It was housing 1,400, I believe the book says. Um, they had long bunks stacked up just with rows of straw. They were just stacked in there like cattle. So they go and they lay down in their area and they immediately start getting bitten by fleas. And they jump up and they're just so distraught that it's flea infested. Just that morning they had read together, Corey and her sister, they had read together that passage from 1 Thessalonians where Paul says, give thanks in all things. And so Corey's sister gives thanks to God and Corey says, no, I'm sorry. I'm not giving thanks for fleas. I don't understand why, what God is doing. No, I am not giving thanks for fleas. So anyway, they prepare themselves for the night that's coming. They, they know what the guards are going to do. They get ready, and it doesn't happen. Days go by, no guards. Weeks go by, no guards. And suddenly they realize, we have a lot of freedom in here. Once we're outside the building, the guards are all over us, and it's hard. But once we get inside this building, we have complete freedom. No one bugs us. We can have Bible studies. This is really great. Why? Then one day there was an argument inside and the guards came rushing and they stopped right at the doorway and said, we're not going to go in that flea-infested place. Out loud they said this. And Corey said she immediately gave thanks and praise to God for fleas. That's in her book, The Hiding Place, if you want to read that for yourself. That's the secret Ecclesiastes wants us to see. In a frustrating life, you don't understand what's going on. It seems just so ridiculous, so hard. Under the beautiful plan of a sovereign God, you can let it go. Rest in His control and He will bring you joy. He will bring you pleasure. He will give you contentment as a gift, He says, even in the midst of your struggles and your trials. It's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. But you know what? We can't do that on our own. We are too afraid. We have too many regrets from our past that we just can't let go of. Something more powerful has to come in and overtake our scared hearts. Something or someone has to come in and just awe us so that we can let these things go. We can't just pull ourselves up and do it. And that's right where our text goes next. We see an awe undoing regret. Look with me at verse 14. <clears throat> it says this. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. See, the idea of fearing God, this is the idea of revering Him, of respecting Him, of holding Him in awe. Godly fear is rooted in being a child of God. This is the respect that a child shows to a father, not what a slave shows to a master. Where does such awe come from? Verse 14 tells us, from God's unchallenged control of all things. The sovereign God sets the times. We can't change His plans. We can't manipulate Him with our good behavior, which frustrates religious people sometimes. I know. I mean, how many of us have thought, Lord, I've given money. I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't hang out with dirty people. I'm a good person. Why is my life so hard? 
See, when we forget the gospel, we're tempted to think those things. But verse 14 is clear. God is in complete control. What He does lasts. Nothing can alter His beautiful plans. He has expressed His sovereign authority in time so that we would revere Him and hold Him in awe. And that awe is the only power that can help us overcome the regrets that we have that hold us in bondage. Boys and girls, I want you to not miss this, so let's look at your verse 14 together. Here's what it says. It says, I also get now that whatever God does lasts forever. Nothing can change it. God shows His control so that we will think He's awesome. See, boys and girls, God shows how much He's in charge so we'll think He's awesome. That's one of those words we use too much, isn't it, boys and girls? You know, about two months ago, Pastor Sean discovered a new flavor of Bluebell ice cream. It is... Ready for this? Okay, no, I'm going to start salivating here. This is going to be an experiment in Pavlov's dogs. It's a brown sugar-based ice cream with dark chocolate chunks, roasted walnuts, chunks of pie crust put in there, and then a caramel drizzle, right? Okay, this love handle is like rejoicing right now. So, and you know what? This ice cream, I mean, there's ever something you want to call awesome, and, and I'm there with you. It's this ice cream, right, boys and girls? It's an awesome flavor. But if we use that word for ice cream, what do we have left when the sovereign God of the universe expresses his unchallenged rule and authority over everything? What word do we have left? See, God reminds us of his control here. God reminds us that everything has a season. There's a time to dance and a time to mourn. There's a time to tear, a time to sow. And He sets it. It's a beautiful plan and nothing can alter it. So we will look at Him and say, that is awesome. That's good ice cream. That's an awesome God. See, it's in that awe of a powerful, sovereign king with a beautiful plan that no one can thwart. It's in that awe that we find our joy. And verse 15 tells us, in that all, we also find the grace that undoes our regrets and our pains. Now, verse 15 is full of a couple of Hebrew idioms from their culture that are weird for us to understand. And so let's all look at verse 15 of the children's translation to try to get that into our language. Here's what it's really saying. It says this, we can't fix our past, and God has set the future, but His plan is is to use and undo our mistakes. Isn't that an amazing thought? His beautiful plan is to use our mistakes, to undo our mistakes, those regrets, those things that steal our joy. We all have those, don't we? And Nikki and I were married in Memphis, and it's a tradition in Memphis that you go down to the Peabody in the summer especially, on a Friday night or Saturday night, you have dessert at this great little thing called Cafe Espresso, and you watch the brides come in on their wedding night. Because everybody in Memphis, if you can, you stay at the Peabody Hotel on your wedding night. Nikki and I were at the Peabody Hotel. I'd gone up earlier and dropped off our vehicle and checked in, so I, didn't have, I could just walk right in. So we walk right in. The whole place stops the murmuring, and it just looks at us. It's brilliant. It's awesome. And you go in, and you turn right at the first hallway to the elevators. I was so nervous and so excited. I missed it. 
and I had to turn right the second hallway, which dead ends into a bunch of plants, and I had to move the plants out of the way. We jumped through, and everybody's watching us, and we finally make it to the elevators. And to this day, when I think of my wedding, the joy is immediately sapped away because like, you stupid moron, look what you did to your wife publicly the first time. It's been like, what? She's not here to correct me. 18, 19 years ago. I'll figure it out for our anniversary. Anyway, that's pretty tame as far as regrets go, I know. But don't we all have something like that, that as soon as we think of this grand event, this little regret pops up and just drains the joy. And you're like, oh, man. The gospel promises that we are more than our past mistakes and regrets, is what verse 15 tells us. Verse 15 says, God seeks out pursues after, chases down and tackles those things that need to be fixed. Isn't that a great image? See, the Hebrew tells us God is going to redeem the past. By His grace, He's going to recover and bring something back. He's going to restore what seems lost forever. See, that's what really bugs us. We have eternity in our hearts, Eden in our veins, and we think, shouldn't I get a mulligan on that? I mean, I'm going to be around for a long time. And we can't go back. But God says, I got that. I'll take it. That's mine. Isn't that a great thought? The gospel is the centerpiece of God's beautiful plan because in it is the power to erase and undo our mistakes. To heal those regrets that we carry around, that we want to forget. God is going to do that through the power of Jesus Christ is the promise of this text. So for those of us who confess Christ as Lord... Those of us who are united to Christ by faith, who are adopted and accepted by God by His grace alone, through the work of Jesus Christ alone, nothing that we have done, the promise is we will be made new. The Bible promises that the old person, the old human is gone. The new one is now here. In Jesus Christ, the new person with a blank slate lives and those regrets are gone. We don't have to be defined by our mistakes anymore because in Christ we're defined by Him and His work. We can rest in the grace of God offered to us in the Gospel. See, then rather than the pain of regret, the promise of the Gospel is we can have daily joy, real pleasure, even in the midst of toil. Because the gospel empowers us to let go of our lives and rest in God's control. That is available to all of us. Simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as He's presented to you in the gospel. And when I get to this point in the sermon, I'll make sure those of you who know you've done that, I'm still talking to you. Because God's mercies are new every morning, the Bible says, because we need Him every day. We need to place our faith and trust in Christ daily. So really look at your life right now if you are in Christ. Are you trying to control your life? Are you trying to manipulate God with your good behavior so He'll give you a good life? Or are you truly resting in the grace of Jesus Christ alone and worshiping the sovereign God? Ask Jesus to set you free even now from trying to perform for God and give him, ask Him to give you the strength to rest so He can give you the joy promised. You can have it. Jesus wants to give you that joy. It's yours for the taking. Rest 
in the gospel. And do it today. And let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess we want to control. We want to be in control. We have a very hard time, even as your children, in surrendering to you and fearing you. Oh, Lord, yet again, would you help us to trust in you as a father because you've made us your children through Jesus Christ. Would you help us, Lord, to believe the gospel in our bones, to cease trying to perform for you, to believe that you are joyful and want to give us joy. And then would you be true to your promises to give us that joy so we may do some good. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.